Welcome to the dark forest. Jackie and her pals will never bore us. Shameless confessions about our obsessions will make us laugh and smile. So let's explore the dark forest and dork down for a this is Jackie Cation. Welcome to a very special The Dork Forest, my first Skype adventure, where I am uh, talking over the interwebs with uh, a guest who lives in Maryland. That's right. And or works there. And you know the, the websites, JackieCation.com, DorkForest.com. There is a donation button. You've used it recently, and I appreciate it. There's a new Dork Forest t-shirt, so hook yourselves up to that. And Patrick Brady will fix this audio. Mike Rickberg just sang the song you'll hear, you heard, and he'll sing again at the end. And Vilmos just revamped the website, so live it up. I uh, am talking over the internet. I'm very excited. Hi, Corey Olson. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Hi. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm talking a little fast. It's a, You are uh, the Tolkien professor. You have a podcast. Quite honestly, the only other podcast I listen to. Oh, well, that's, just, that's a great honor. It uh it would be it would be a greater honor if I listened if I really like talk radio but it's just <laughs> me and you it's it's just what I am editing and then I'm fascinated by I mean I I wish I even I wish I've learned more about Middle Earth I'm not Middle Earth um um medieval English <laughs> I don't think either of those words are correct <laughs> yeah no I mean it's it's been it's been a lot of fun I mean uh, you know the the main thing that I've been excited about in doing this is just basically making connections with people yeah you know, with people like you who are who are who are you know just sort of you know who are fans and interested in this kind of thing you know my my own my own whole, you know, deal is that I basically, as a junior professor, was told, you know, you need to get out there and publish. And I was like, well, okay, I could, I, I, I could do that, and I did a little bit of that. And then I was like, sure. you know what, this is actually a little bit lame because I'm spending all this time <laughs> writing this stuff, and like, what, twenty people out there are reading it, like. This is yeah. this is not actually all that much fun, and in particular, it seemed it seemed silly to do that when what I really wanted to write about was Tolkien. And I'm like, I know there are more than 20 people out there who would be interested to, to talk and hear about Tolkien. So I, I'm kind of I kind of suspect that there's a bigger audience out there, and it might be fun since I'm you know like a teacher and everything to actually yeah. engage, <laughs> engage with uh, with real people instead of uh, instead of focusing all of my attention on writing things which only uh, you know my peers will read not that there's anything against scholarly publishing I, I like that stuff no. and I read it myself and it's all good but again I just felt like there's 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 more people out there who uh, who don't really get a chance so anyway so for sure and that was the whole idea everyone should go listen to it because there's there's the extensive Silmarillion yeah. see I took a class. Here's what happened. Okay. I know that you I, – I just read an article about you that you first read The Hobbit when you were eight. Yes. And then by the time you were in seventh grade, you knew a great deal about The Lord well, of the Rings? I, 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 by, by seventh grade, I believed I knew a great deal about The Lord of the Rings, which is not necessarily <laughs> the same thing. I considered myself one of the world's foremost experts. I don't think that was actually <laughs> true. But, uh, yeah. Something about 12. That'll do it for <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It'll really help you out. But I, uh, I didn't read it until I was about 19 when my brother uh, Phil uh, – who is matter of fact, I, I do a joke about how he's not very religious unless you count the Lord of the Rings. 
Because my brother Phil will say, what would Galadriel do? Right, right. And we know what she'd do. She'd diminish and go into the West. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But uh, she Which uh, actually is applicable to a surprising number of circumstances. I, that's what he says. <laughs> he says he's willing. He says, I'm willing to diminish. Exactly. I did, you know. It offers a great deal of surrender. It offers a great deal of humility. That's right. And, that's right. and when you're an all-powerful elf lady, yep. that's owning it, really, exactly. quite honestly. It's a big deal. You know, uh, Sean Elliott, one of my – this leads right into uh, – Sean Elliott, one of my listeners, has a question for you. Uh, if you were offered Nenya, Narya, or Vilya, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it. Yeah, no, that's right. Way, uh, which one would you take? Well, I think I'd have to go with Narya, which is the Ring of Fire that Gandalf has. Because, I mean, you know, that's pretty cool. I I mean, it's just – it's hard to get more boss than Gandalf's Ring of Power. Because, I mean, it's (laughs) it's fairly clear that when Gandalf is confronting the Balrog on the bridge of Khazad-dûm, the power of the Ring of Fire is one of the things that he's invoking in his in the kind of cryptic speech that he makes to the Balrog. Right. You know, I am the servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. That seems to be what he's talking about, the, the yes. Ring of Fire. So, uh, so anyway, so, you know, clearly anything that uh, helps to give Gandalf the, uh, you know, the oomph to oppose the Balrog and the bridge of oh, Khazad-dûm, yeah. kind of hard to walk away from that. Now, here's my thing is now I, I is it was it Galadriel who has Nenya? Yes. It is. Or and and is it the, now the power of Nenya is to create, is that correct? Well, it's it's the 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 rings are the three rings are associated with the elements: Vilya with air, and Nenya with water, and uh, and Narya with fire. Um, okay. So it's the ring of water. Um, it does seem to be. I mean, certainly her power. I mean, all of the rings of power, the Elven rings of power, are associated with kind of collectively. They're not really distinguished very clearly. Nowhere does it say like, you know, here's the stuff you can do with this one, and here's the stuff you can do with the other one. Exactly. Um, but fair uh, enough. You know, it's 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 not like you know. Uh, like it, like it on a you know role playing game or something. You know, like here's it boosts these stats. These this you know we don't we don't get that information about the rings of power. Right. Instead, it turns out he didn't write a character sheet right, for exactly. each uh, ring, exactly. which is definitely. Um, but anyway, I, certainly uh, all of the rings of powers, uh, the elven rings of power, are associated with with healing and preservation and keeping things the way that they are. Goadriel's own power certainly does is she does exert it in. Uh, in uh, in making you know that she right you know you think the song that she sings you know uh, when she when they're in when they're leaving Lorien she said when she sings I sang of leaves of leaves of gold and leaves of gold there grew uh, which yeah. means apparently she invented the Mauorn tree in some sense like that was her right. idea you know yes um, and so yeah it does seem that the ring of power has certainly helped to give her the ability to construct Lothlorien which you know. Pretty cool, you know. Not going to vary. That's that's it's pretty nice. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, make mystical elvish semi paradise or be able right. to, you know, confront a Balrog face to face. I still got to go with option B there. Uh, you know, all things <laughs> Fair considered, you're, you're going to want some firepower. I don't blame exactly. you. Exactly. You that. Exactly. Uh, Sean Elliott had one other question. As long as we're doing Sean's questions. Um, 
what uh, have you have you done sort of a, a a tour of Tolkien places to visit? Have you done I any of that yet? Uh, not no not I mean okay I've done uh, uh, one thing which is of uh, uh, it's sort of a a necessity which is I well, have indeed <laughs> uh, uh, drunk a pint at uh, the Eagle and Child pub in Oxford. Hey, me too. Yeah. That's the only thing I've ever done too. <laughs> exactly. Well, I was <laughs> the burden baby in Oxford. Exactly. Yeah. When I was uh, I, when I was in college, a couple of my friends studied at Oxford for a year, and I was I went over and visited them uh, uh, during uh, during one of our breaks. And we did. We we definitely made the pilgrimage down and had a pint in the burden baby. But other than that, I haven't done too much of the touring. I would love to go see uh, Sarah Hall Mill, his which is the the the, the place which it seems uh, the old mill in Hobbiton was kind of. Based Based on it's one of his childhood oh, okay. places, Tolkien's childhood places. Uh, they've recently been kind of converting that into a sort of destination, yeah, a little Tolkien museum kind of thing. Um, but uh, uh, but you know that's I haven't done I haven't done too much of the rest of that. Even even in Oxford, I didn't do the full Tolkien tour, like to you know the houses he lived in and stuff. Uh, right, I I didn't get to do it either. Though I did at the Burden Baby have a relish sandwich. There you go. Because it was two pound twenty, and I was broke. But um, I was like, that can't really be a relish sandwich. And then it turns out the British came through with a sandwich with relish, and that's what it was. It was the dumbest sandwich I've ever, I think, ever had in my whole life. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I've read the Silmarillion once. You've inspired me to download it and purchase it via my Kindle. Oh, cool. Because then I, because when I travel, it's just easier. To to carry a book that I'm not going to read yes. uh, in my Kindle, yes, then exactly. uh, to physically bring it around and have it stare at me, hey, and that's the um, first step, you know, to have it there just in <laughs> case you read it, uh, is, right? You know, a step on the path. And I have reread the first thirty pages, and it was great because I don't think that I had ever really, I didn't when I read it, I was nine. I, I took a class after my brother. He inspired me to read The Lord of the Rings, and then his wife, uh, I read The Dragon Riders of Pern, yep. and I had never read any um, fantasy or, or science fiction really prior to that. I had mostly read just, I think, murder mysteries and westerns, <laughs> weirdly <laughs> enough. But um, So I took this class that was on Charles Williams, C.S. Lewis, and... Tolkien, and then we did the we did not do the Hobbit because the professor, who I wish I could remember his name, even though it was probably twenty years ago, you might have heard of him at the University of Wisconsin. Um, but he um, he said that we were not going to read the Hobbit because it was a children's book, and we were only doing adult literature of all three of them. Oh, I see. Right. Yes. Yeah. Mm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. It it felt like, and I had I had only just read The Hobbit as well, and I was like, wait, isn't it all children's literature? And, and then he uh, was like, it is literature, and we will go there. You know, yeah, I, 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 I gotta say, it's a that's 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 kind of a little bit silly, but you know, in some ways, actually, I guess that's better than people who just dismiss the whole, you know, all fantasy right. literature as kid stuff. So I guess it seems like a kind of like a like reverse or countercultural snobbery to... I think he had to pick a lane yeah. in 1987 yeah. and he decided to go take a high horse. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. So no, that's, you know, I can I can, I can can see that. Again, I, you know, not that I can sympathize with the uh, the uh, shunting aside of The Hobbit, but but I can... Right, know, right. It's fine. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's no... Yeah, there's no shunting... I I just reread it because of the movie coming out, and it's fascinating. I mean, it is very light 
to some extent in the beginning, but when the dwarves go essentially when they lose it and the battle yeah. that seems super adult yeah. and very dark yeah it, it is it's, it's actually some, one of the things that c.s lewis really commented on when he was reading the drafts of the hobbit before they were published he had, there's this really funny existing letter where he was expressing exactly that he was like whoa he's like what happens at the end of this book like all of a sudden this is this is this is this is really grown up um right right what the hell happened <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and i think it, it's actually a very interesting uh, uh transition that tolkien manages and i think it actually it's one of the things that i that i'm really interested in in the hobbit is looking at the way that tolkien is is sort of deliberately engaging with juvenile readers you know that he's clearly right. especially in chapter one he keeps a very kind of comic tone things are uh things are, are much more sort of deliberately funny and he's using sort of silly words that he makes up or the, you know deliberately um uh, sort of it does feel deliberate yeah, yeah yeah you know like even even in the even in like the, the very first paragraph where he's talking about you know a, a hobbit hole and it's you know it's not one of it, it's not a nasty dirty hole filled with the ends of worms and an oozy smell uh you know and right. that's just not the way that he talks by the time he gets to the battle of five armies you know and uh, right right it's sort of like he's luring you in he's like no no it's gonna be this light yeah. awesome adventure story oh and by the way people are gonna <laughs> lose their minds by the end of it, yeah. and uh, yeah, but I think you know it's it's one of the things that he that Tolkien talked about when he in in uh, like for in, for instance in his his famous essay on fairy stories where he was sort of theorizing about fairy tales and fantasy literature, um, and uh, one of the things that he talks about there is you know he he he's strongly opposed to the impulse which of course was was pretty prominent in Victorian England when he was growing up uh, to basically clean up children's stories you know like we're going to take the Brothers oh, right. Grimm, but we're going to give you like the PG version of the Brothers Grimm, and we'll take out mm-hmm. all the bits where, like, we strip people naked and put them with in like barrels with nails pointed on the inside and roll <laughs> them down hills. Like, we're going to totally leave out those bits. And uh, what is that from? If I might interject. Uh, the Goose Girl. That is the punishment that is meted out uh, to the wicked servant who usurps the place of uh, of her mistress and, uh, and right. lies about it. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, true story. I will be looking that up. Okay. <laughs> yeah. link, I'm going to link it up in the notes. Yeah, just, okay. just one that jumps yeah. to mind is uh, sure. that were not included in Victorian versions of these of, of these stories. But anyway, as I say, Tolkien was was really opposed to this. You know, he, he thinks that, that not only – can kids handle, um, you know, what what we, uh, you know, in in this era would call darker stuff, um, right. you know, stuff where people actually suffer and and uh, you know really receive horrible consequences of of their actions and um, you know and evil is truly evil, right? Yeah, right. And real real bad stuff happens, and you can see this even before the Battle of Five Armies. This kind of starts to sneak in. One of the moments that really strikes me about this in The Hobbit is after Smaug's attack on on Lake Town. Yeah. Lake Town is destroyed, and okay, Lake Town is destroyed, but uh, like it's still kind of a more or less happy thing because this, this dragon is dead, and and then Bard right. comes up in that awesome dramatic moment. You know, he sort of you know they're all like, oh, alas, that Bard is lost, and then you know he 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 sort of comes, out, and you can just see. I mean, even in the book, it seems like a this kind of like slow mo glamour shot. You know, as he yeah. comes out and like tosses his like, dripping hair and says. 
Bard <laughs> was not slain. He leapt from the town. You know. So anyway, uh, he. I am the slayer of the dragon. You know. So I. You know. Okay. So things are still more or less happy. But Tolkien <laughs> goes out of his way at the end of that to point out that not only did a quarter, twenty-five percent, a quarter of the people in the town died during yeah. Smaug's attack, but that many more of them are going to fall sick and die over the course of the hard winter that's going right, to that's it's, going to come. I I remember that because it was right before you were like now why would you bring that up yeah, well I suppose that's what I now do you think that now is it, and and I'm sure Tolkien would appreciate me asking about his World War One and how it re- refers to yeah. ho- the Hobbit uh, but I mean he saw so much war that he probably didn't want to sugarcoat it you yeah. know no exactly he was he was okay. he was definitely anti sugarcoating and it was one of the things I mean you can look at that's of course a complicated uh, question I don't want to oversimplify like the relationship of his World War One experience to his fiction but uh, but certainly right. you know just as uh, uh, you know there were. I mean, you know, that a, a lot of the reactions against World War One, you know, many of the sort of famous World War One writers who were writing in response to it and and basically, right. you know, this there's this whole literature of disillusionment that kind of arose from <laughs> yes. World War One. Um uh that are and basically Tolkien is right I mean, he is he is that generation. He was at the song yeah. for crying out loud. I mean he was right. he was in the middle <laughs> of the worst of it. Um, and his reaction is not totally different from everybody else's, but it is quite different. Instead of just being like, oh, like we're disillusioned and everything is awful. Now, that's a, how about that for a terrible summary of World War I literature? But anyway, <laughs> uh, he, he, you know, basically, he, he talks about fantasy literature as a way to actually process these things and deal with them and come to grips with them, not just to escape them. This is one of the things that really annoyed him when people were sort of thinking about fantasy and talking about fantasy as merely escapist. And he was like, well, A, we have learned that actually we kind of do need to escape because like uh, newsflash people, the world kind of sucks in many ways. You know, like life is hard. Uh, And uh, like, like, don't you want to escape from it? Like what? what, Is is there a problem here? But but yeah. but the second thing was that you know he'd say you know it's not just like running away from it, it's it's actually like learning to deal with it. It's learning to contextualize it, and and you can so, so I think you can see on the Hobbit he's kind of doing this uh, for kids and with kids. So by, by the time we get to the end, yeah, he's he's uh, he's feeding them some pretty stiff stuff at the end of the, right at, at, at the end of the Hobbit there. But um, so anyway, yes yes, it's a children's book. I think there's plenty to talk about there. Sure, uh, you know very sure. interesting stuff but well you know i think that uh now what do you think speaking of sweeping statements and i'm famous for them uh the uh i think jk rowling might have might you know how she's very derivative obviously it's been it's been addressed Mm -hmm. and uh but i think she does that same thing with the the first harry potter book where it's very light and it's very come on in it's gonna be this fun adventure with magical wizards who go to grade school and uh and then by the end of it Everybody's insane and people are dying and dead. And, yeah. I mean, it's foul. Yeah. So. Yeah. No. I, clearly, she's she's thinking in those in those same kinds of terms. I mean, it does work a little bit differently, I think, in her books. But yeah. But no, I I, I agree. We could oh, definitely sure. see that same kind of uh, the arc at least. Yeah. yeah. It's um okay. So now Kevin Flanagan, he had a question, um, which was what the heck was it? Here it goes. Oh, he wants, uh, he, he thinks, cause, uh, I guess you were discussing earlier that there was a possibility, you thought that there might be 
this, a Silmarillion movie. <laughs> You mentioned it in passing, and of course, those who have some sort of fine tooth comb are like, really? And what he would like to see as a movie would be of Baron and Luthien. Yes. He said that certain chapters could be make great movies all by themselves. Yes, I agree. And I think that's the, the, the thing that I have said about this before is pretty much just along those lines. Um, that I do think that there, especially there, there, the two stories, really, the two, uh, the two greatest stories, and I mean, like, in within from Tolkien's point of view, the ones, the longest ones, and the ones that he rewrote and rewrote the most, both of them, I think, could right. be made into really good movies. Uh, and those are the tale, of, the tale of Baron and Luthien, and the tale of Turin Turambar. Um, right. Another cheerful tale. Oh boy, cheerful doesn't even begin to describe. <laughs> I, I can't possibly see either of those movies. Yeah, uh, yeah. I would just be a puddle by the end of them. <laughs> oh man, yeah. There's nothing quite like uh, having like oh like, and then it's revealed that they were that they were brother and sister all along, and she throws herself <laughs> off the cliff, and he stabs himself to death. Credits roll. Uh, <laughs> exactly. I mean, What's the stinger? Yeah, it's you know that the scene after the credits where they're just sitting around joking somehow. I don't. <laughs> Uh, right. Maybe they're somewhere on the western shore. Right. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, of course, you know, in in the, uh, in the in the in the version of the story that's published in the Silmarillion, in a sense, there is a kind of stinger. That is, there's another scene uh, wh- where um, this elf lord from Doriath, who is Turin's friend, and who is the one who does the sort of the final reveal, like Turin has oh. has just has been told uh, that the woman whom he has taken as his wife is truly his sister. And but he doesn't believe it, and he killed the guy right. who said that to him. And then right. he's, uh, you know, so. But then finally, his his friend, he meets his friend who confirms that she was his <laughs> sister. And then he's mm-hmm. like, "Oh, this only was wanting." And then he runs off and stabs himself to death. And it basically then ends with his friend, the elf, coming upon his body as he stabbed himself and being like, "Oh." Uh, you know, thus, as he says, and of course in Silmarillion speak, thus have I slain with my tidings one whom I loved most. Um, the end. Right. <laughs> it's the end. Oh, and yeah. another sign that sometimes it's an inside your head voice. How about that? How about you don't say that out loud? <laughs> right. Kevin, you know, and I don't know what this one is. A Calabeth? A Calabeth? Yes, that's the, that's the uh, downfall of Numenor. Oh, okay. He wants that to be an HBO miniseries. Hey, you know, it, I, I, the HBO miniseries, like, if, if, we, if we sort of take that as a, as a sort of genre now, you yep. know, or, or like a, or even a medium in a sense, you know, like you've got, you've got, you've got film TV series, which is not quite the same thing, and HBO miniseries, which is now a thing. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it could, I mean, if, if, if you gave like a Game of Thrones treatment, uh, that, yeah. The only way that I could see anything larger than just those sort of individual episodes of the Silmarillion being done. I do think that some of those stories would be really good on screen. The Fall of Numenor, possibly. Um, a lot of it is kind of – is a little bit, uh, I don't know, abstract. That is okay. you know, the depiction of – you know, a people over time becoming increasingly complacent and then, like, you know... <laughs> oh, that sounds like good television. Doesn't it? That's <laughs> just... And, like, grudging the everlasting life of the elves, <laughs> which is beyond their reach, and being discontented with the amount of bliss that has been allotted to them in Middle-earth. That's... it's, it's it, it, That would be hard. That would be hard. I would think it would be difficult. It's not quite like Baron and Luthien and Turin Turin in that sense. <laughs> 
No, it's a little, it does sound a little plotting. <laughs> um, so fair enough. He also had, um, so let's, for me, I have, I have Lord of the Rings issues with the movies. And I have, uh, I have been known to say that the Lord of the Rings movies are no willow. Right. Well, true, uh, true. No willow. Yes, I agree. Right. Because I enjoyed Willow, quite honestly, start to finish, because my expectations were low, and they were completely met, and uh, Val Kilmer was the greatest swordsman in the world. That, that, was, that, was, that was cool. It was, it was very cool, <laughs> and, and Warwick Davis had an acorn. He was awesome. Yeah. Anyway, but the um, I, my greatest – I mean, besides the Faramir problem, yes. yeah. it is – I mean, you might not have had the problem with Faramir that I did, but only because I fell in love with Faramir. I mean, I had a giant crush on Faramir, yeah, and for I, them to completely, it was, it was, it was a little bit sad. I, I'm not going to deny. I, I had it's a travesty. I had a little bit, and it's one of those things. There, there are many things with the Lord of the Rings films, which I will admit, uh, when I saw them, like I felt as much outrage as any other Tolkien fan about, you know, I, I was, right. I was outraged about that. Even smallish things like there's that one moment in the two towers when Eowyn is flirting with Aragorn and, yes. and he like half a little bit flirts back. And I mean, I was just like sitting there in the theater growling. I was like, don't you go there. <laughs> <laughs> is it, is it because of Aragorn? Well, what, now what, now specifically why? Because I, I can guess, but. Well, it's yeah. just, you know, the, the, I mean, you know, like, okay, look, I, I totally understand how, like, a filmmaker would want to have there be a little bit more tension. You know, Aragorn, oh, right. uh, Aragorn is pretty, you know, it's, is, 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 you know, since he's like, I'm just thinking about Arwen 100%, there's no conflict here. I can totally see a filmmaker thinking, I need to show some more internal conflict than that. So let's, like, show him at least briefly flirting with the idea of, like, gosh, wouldn't mm. it be nice to hook up with Arwen? No, 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 I can't I, I won't um okay like I, I i get that but still i i i object yeah. i did not i did i object well because you know, I, I mean, the, the romance between arwen and aragorn as much as it's you know conducted off stage in the books right. is, a, is like a, one of the central facts of the of the later third age i mean it's a yeah and it feels deal. like it's been like 40 years in the making yes. too like it it's i mean it's and my greatest problem with with the, the character of aragorn is that he was this uncomfortable king in the movie yes. and in the book there's no there's no discomfort he's aragorn yeah Ex yeah well, and that that to me that, that's a symptom of the biggest you know if, if, if people ask me like what do you think is the most significant change that the film made from the book? And broadly speaking, that's it. Not just that that thing about Aragorn, but the larger tendency of which that thing is one of the biggest examples, and Faramir is another one. And that is the tendency to bring everybody down a notch. You know, uh, the Lord. So there can be an arc. Well, yeah, like basically everybody. Ha we the, the premise of the films seems to be that we as audience members have to be able to relate directly to all of the main characters you know so uh, no, nobody has to be like above our experience right right um so everybody has to be down at our level so we have to see like they all have to be you know conflicted and you know torn yeah. back and forth and struggling with things in order for us to be able to get behind them um now in the books yeah. 
the way that this the way that this works is that the you know the the, the story is told from the point of view fundamentally from the point of view of the hobbits. It is fundamentally a hobbit story, not just that right. it's primarily interested in hobbits, but that it's from their perspective. So characters like like. Aragorn and Faramir and Gandalf and even Aemir uh, and 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 uh, and people like them, Boromir even. Um, yep. Are I mean they are larger than life characters because they're literally larger than because it's like it's like a film shot from three feet off the ground and you're looking <laughs> up at them the whole time. yeah. And you know what? Like Aragorn is not like us. <laughs> he's just no. not, you know, and that's cool. He's great. He's a hero. He's, you know, they're superheroes. Yes. There's no reason for us not to be completely unrelating to them, but also incredibly admiring of them. Exactly. See, we can I relate mean, to them in that way. Admiration is a form of relating to, 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 to someone. Whereas and it, the film premise seems to be everybody's got to be, we can't just admire them. Everybody's got to be, you know, like struggling. Everybody. I will say this. I will say that I'm glad Peter Jackson didn't try to make us relate to um, Sauron. <laughs> yes. That would have been a little bit <laughs> – That would. I was like, oh, is he conflicted? Mm. Turns out no. Turns Just out. giant eyeball in the sky and not conflicted. Bad guy. <laughs> right, right, oh. right. And- my, my greatest I, – I was disappointed in, in, the, in the Hobbits because what I love about the Lord of the Rings is the little guys are the heroes. Yes. And in the movies, Aragorn got to be the hero, and he is the hero, but he isn't the one who's – oh, but we're back. Yeah, we're back. So, yeah. So Aragorn never in, never out of his element, but Frodo completely out of – and there was one, that scene where uh, Sam yes. and Frodo fight over the ring. Oh, don't even. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. I wanted to cut myself. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's just – I was yeah. like, no. no when when – uh, when, when uh, when that when that happened, uh, you know, or rather, like the scene when Frodo like sends Sam away, like I was like the the person yeah. I went to the movie with, like had like his hand on my <laughs> shoulder. He's like, you know, just like just stay calm. Don't even stay calm. <laughs> Um, but anyway, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. I mean, that's that's. But but see again, like you know, we were talking about the the lack of heroism of the hobbits uh, in in the movies. I mean, yes, they still do. I mean, they still do come in for some heroic moments and stuff. One of my favorite, like pro heroism hobbit moments in the film is uh, at the last battle at the battle of the uh, of the black gate when uh, when Merry and Pippin charge out first and everybody else is chasing after oh, right. them. that's really cool but see even that's a, sort of a small thing like I said the book is shot from three feet above the ground looking up the films are shot from six feet above the ground looking down so you're always looking down at the hobbits they're always yeah. To some extent or other, comical relief, or even when they're heroic, it's a little bit cute. Um, and right. that's just not the way it is in the book. So you think, you know, what, one moment that I that I find really illustrative about this is the fight, uh, the fight with Boromir, when oh, right. uh, you, you know the orcs are are ambushing them. In the book, we're told they do pretty well. Like, Mary actually chops off the hands and arms of a bunch of orcs. Like, they're, they're, Mary and Pippin are there back to back with their sword, yeah. hacking the orcs to pieces until finally they're taken. You know, in the films, they're just standing there, and orcs just come and pick them up and carry them away, and they're like completely right. helpless. I mean, they, yes. they, they do sort of fight with Boromir for a little while there, but uh, that is on his side, not against him. But anyway, um, they're they're. It's just I, I think it's as I say, it sort of illustrates the way in which they don't 
really do much. They don't really accomplish much, and they're more often than not comic relief, um, and right. certainly not not heroes of the same of the same stature. Um, yeah, the books are so much better. People should just read the books. Eh, it turns it's out it's true. It's true. The books are but, good. I, I can't deny. I, I prefer the books. But uh, you know, yes. the, the, this is one of the th- one of the things I always say about the films is that even in places where I disagree with choices that they made, the cool thing is that it helps to draw your attention to the other stuff that's in the book. When you see the things that are different in the films, um, you that it, oh, it right. kind of forces you to go back and realize, you know. You know, like Faramir, for instance. You see how Faramir is depicted in the films, and you're like, I hate that. But then when you talk about it, you've got to think, well, okay, why do I hate What exactly do I hate about that? You know, what is it that right. I liked so much about Faramir in the books that I'm missing, that I wish were there and isn't in the films? And, and actually, I think it, it, it not only helps to sort of, uh, you know, inspire a lot of conversation, which is kind of more or less yeah. what I do for a living, but it's also <laughs> – it just is something that I think really helps to clarify our own understanding, even when it's when it's stuff that's a complete departure, or or you know even like things that are not in the films at all. You know, even that question. Well, gosh, they really cut that out. Well, you know, okay, so why do you miss it? You know, what right? What did it contribute? Right. Well, you know what? When the first time I read it, I did not enjoy the Tom Bombadil, mm-hmm. but over the years, I read it every year more and more. I'm the Tom Bombadil chapter is one of my very favorite chapters. Yeah. Yeah. And it just it speaks to me a lot more than Do you remember that old the the old text video game? Uh, the Lord of the Rings video game? The, the text-based video game. Yeah, the text-based video game. It's probably I don't know, 15 years old. I always died of starvation uh next to the Willy Wind uh the, <laughs> next to the river because I um got lost and Tom Bombadil never shows up. Oh, so, it was one of the most irritating. What a rip-off. It was a giant rip-off and I <laughs> There, there was no such thing as a walkthrough at that time, so I was uh, kind of – I was screwed. But, uh, oh, I wanted to say that I do like the movies. I wanted to say that because – but what I do when I watch the movies is I put it out of my mind, the books. Yeah. Yep. It's the best way to enjoy the movies for me is to just go, this is an action movie. This is essentially the greatest willow ever. <laughs> Just really just embrace it as that and move yeah. the heck on, you know? No, it's true. I mean, and that's the thing that I think is, is really unfair. You know, that basically when, when the criticisms that people make about the movies essentially boil down to, it's not the books. Well, no, of course it's not the books. What do you want? Like, you know, the, 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 like, thousand pages of Lord of the Rings used as a script like that's that's what you want I mean it's with like all of the description of the of the landscape and the kinds of plants that they pass by (laughs) as a voiceover like that's what I mean it's not the books it's just not (laughs) I will say this though though uh, and of course you know this kind of conversation is the kind of conversation that could go on for 17 hours (laughs) which is where you're like well, but Tolkien did write a great line there. Right. Why would the script guy not use that line? Yes. It was just, but, um, uh, Kevin Flanagan had another one is, uh, is he, cause his greatest disappointment in the, in the movie, in the movies was, uh, the fact that the scouring of the Shire wasn't in uh, there. Ah, yes. Yes. And that was, you know, I kind of, 
I had braced myself for that. I mean, I was pretty sure they were going to cut that just because, I mean, you can't do it all. And, right. you know, because of the way that that is detached from the story, you know, I mean, it basically it was pretty easy to cut. Very little else had to be changed in order to cut it. So it was I basically for those reasons, I was I was anticipating that they were going to cut it. So I didn't. So you went in kind of feeling, okay. Exactly. I was going to be all kinds of shocked if uh, the (laughs) Shire was there and it wasn't. And so I was, but I mean, to me, the, the, the moment where I really miss it is of course that moment, because I think it's a really important thing that really changes the whole ending of the stories, the two stories, the book version and the film version, um, is that moment in the film when the four of them are back in the Shire and they're back at the Green Dragon and everybody else and they're like sitting there drinking their beer and nobody else is paying any attention to them and like nothing has changed except they've changed but the the consequence of their own change really just seems to be like now they're a little awkward and uncomfortable uh you know and and basically the only positive thing that seems to come out of it is that it apparently took a trip to mordor and back to like give you know sam the nerve to propose to rosie and that's what that's the (laughs) only thing that comes out of it which is cool but um but you know i I just i that 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 moment i think is a really important moment because in the book of course one of the one of the points of the scouring of the shire is uh you know basically encapsulated in a a line by saruman when he says when he says to frodo he says you've grown halfling right and they have they've grown and you know they come back and they have of course mary Mary and pippin have literally grown physically yeah but all four of them have grown in stature and they are now you know among the great, as Gandalf says, and we see yeah. them, you know, that, that now they come home and they are able, the Shire needs putting to rights again, and they are able to do it by themselves because they have. Right, and they can rouse those big people, and it's not that, and it's not intimidating to them, yes. you know? Yes. And, and that's how they've grown. And, and when Gandalf says, no, no, it's not my time anymore. You guys are more than prepared mm-hmm. to deal with the Shire. Exactly, exactly. And you get the the you know on the that loss really hurt me yeah. in the movie a yeah. little bit. But yeah, but I but I think I knew too that they weren't going to do it. Yeah, yeah. But it's just I mean I think that you know the way that the Shire itself is unaffected by the events. Um, right. Is, that was <laughs> in the film. And again, like you know, how in a movie, given how much time they have left at that point, the movie's already really long. You know, how are they going to show visually that? the Shire has changed because of what they've done. It's, I mean, I don't know how I would have done it better, but, but it does make right. for a big difference. I think. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. It's, um, uh, my brother also wanted to say that he, he appreciates the treatment of the books as literature, yeah. by the way, oh. that you do. And, uh, so yeah, Phil Cation, uh, he likes your work is what I'm saying. Well, very good. I'm glad. And it's, and yeah, and certainly this is something, I mean, look, there's no question. I, I, one of my, one of my own little sort of pet peeves are, uh, academics who try to marginalize Tolkien because like they threw what is really nothing other than pigheadedness. And you can tell them I said that, uh, basically <laughs> believe that, I will. oh, well, fantasy literature can't be real literature. So therefore it's excluded. It is one of, a just, there is there is no question that it is one of the five most brilliant works of literature written in English in the 20th century and and like bring it I, I it's it's that, yeah. that I think is is really for anyone who is who is willing to read it with that kind of an open mind that is uh, willing to accept the possibility that something that includes magic and and or 
orcs and elves uh, might actually be great literature. Um, it's just right because fiction is fiction. I mean, I don't understand why the you're like, well, it's got monsters in it, and you're like, yeah, so does Dracula and Frankenstein. Yeah. Those are considered literature. Yeah, right. No, exactly. It's just there, yeah. there's this. Uh, it's I don't know. It's 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 very interesting. It's actually one of the things that I would. Uh, that I would like to see kind of more done on. I think there needs to be some some kind of study which combines literature and like sociology and psychology. Like my question is, what is it about fantasy fantasy literature that bothers so many people so much? I mean, because it's not just like, oh, I don't care for that. It's violent. You know, it's like people are are like hey, they hate it, even if they know right. absolutely nothing about it. It just right they get a little grumpy magoo about it and it just it i mean the 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 great topics are i mean cuz what name a couple of the other like what would you consider the the other f- four great pieces of literature it's like, can I, you name I, a Joyce was a very great writer Joyce's Ulysses right. is, is is an is an incredible right. book uh, you know T.S. Eliot's Wasteland is, is is an amazing work of literature that poem's just incredible um right. you know there's there's great stuff out there but you know Lord of the Rings is. I know, and the Lord of the Rings stands right there with it. And this is just one of be- the reasons why, by the way, so many Tolkien scholars are uh, medievalists, because basically, you know, uh, people who who know medieval literature tend to be a little bit quicker to appreciate um, the kind of amazing things that Tolkien does, because he does a lot of very medievalish things in the Lord of the Rings, which a lot of 20th century scholars don't really recognize or don't uh, don't don't really sort of. Uh, see that they're yeah. Gone, so, well, you may, um, I in college as well. I read, and I'm, am I saying it right? Sir Gawain and the yes, Green Knight. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Yes. Good for me. Yeah. All right, because I always want to say Gwen because yep. uh, well, I'm from Wisconsin. See, I th- so actually, you know, in, I, I think that it probably was pronounced Gawain sometimes. That is clearly in in some versions, it 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 it, it rhymes with other okay things. So like, it's very like the French version was clearly Gawain, but the 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 English, the Old English, or the 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 Middle English, uh, you know, especially Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, was clearly Gowan because it alliterates and the stress is on the first syllable there. So basically right. the, 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 the moral of the story is you really can't be wrong. Okay. Yeah. Cause <laughs> of the fact that I know what it is, I'm already proud of myself. <laughs> so uh, the fact that I've heard of it. So what, what about, um, have you read the like Charles Williams or CS Lewis or those, the other, I mean, I had never heard of Charles Williams, yes. and I never read Narnia when I was a kid. Oh yes, no, I'm a big Lewis fan, especially. Um, I've done some Williams. I, I, I've, I, you know, Williams is one of the uh, the authors that I've been really wanting to kind of dig back into uh, because it's been I, I only read a little bit of him, and, and he's hard to get a hold of. Like his books are actually hard to obtain. Uh, it, oh, it, it's, physically, yes, like it's because they're out of print. Exactly right. Uh, they're not like Narnia and the Lord of the Rings in that in that. Way, um, right? But uh, but anyway, yeah. No, I would uh, I would. So yeah, I've uh, I have had it on did the he list write... to kind of get back into Williams. Did you did you? Um, I, I can't. I get them all mixed up now. Not not the Tolkien, obviously, but uh, between C.S. Lewis and Charles Williams, I know that uh, till we have faces was that, that was Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes. Okay, because that was an amazing. Yes. An am- I mean, talk about us, a, a, a tearjerker. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, and then the greater Trumps, was that Lewis too? That's Williams. That's Williams. Yeah. That was an amazing book. And it was weirdly, 
Like I think of Philip K. Dick because it's so freaking convoluted. Yes. That you know, you just go down the rabbit hole and you're like, what is happening? Yeah, but it, is but, Gary Williams. <laughs> yeah, convoluted. Yeah, it's it it was it was some of the harder stuff to read, but it was worth it. It was a challenge that was like it was one of those books where you felt like you really achieved something at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I uh, my favorite of Lewis is that the space trilogy. Yes. Because I find it to be sort of the greatest defense of Christianity that I ever read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that it wasn't, you know, because I spent a lot of time in church as a child. It's not like I don't go to church, but I'm not a, but the, uh, um, but the out of the asylum, I love the science fiction premise of that every planet has its own angel Mm -hmm. and we just, Unfortunately, happen to be have Lucifer. Right. Yes, we got the short end of the stick on the Eldil right, front. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And of course, in in doing this, he's he's uh, that he's depicting a medieval idea. Uh, that was that was a that was a medieval concept that each uh, each sphere, each planet has what they would have called a planetary intelligence. Um, but yeah, no, he's he do, he does an incredible job in that. I think that um, the space trilogy is really cool. One of the things that people often think when they go back to the space trilogy is they're like, well, you know, like as a work of science fiction, this is kind of silly. Like there's you know, like his spaceship is like totally unexplained oh. and and in Paralandra well. he doesn't even bother with it and he just has you know, uh, uh, ransom in this like coffin thing, which just gets carried across space by the angel directly. Like you know, right. forget the fake spaceship. We're just cutting out the middleman. Um, but basically, you know, Lewis. And a thing that I think that people don't really realize is historically, in its context, that is. This was prior to – this was written prior to the real boom of science fiction like the Isaac Asimov years and stuff like that where right. you know, basically people who really kind of put the science in science fiction to a much Yeah, it was pre-Sputnik. Extent. Yeah. So I mean, for him to have any idea of how the gravity of a spaceship would work, yeah. the, the fact that he puts it in the center of the, of, of the spaceship implies that – that's how gravity works. Yeah. You put it, you would put it like the Earth. You would put it in the center, and there would be a gravitational pull towards it. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly he's thought through some of these things, but really, he's you know, as his work of science fiction, as was true of of most works of science fiction of that time, these were basically ways to kind of sort of take these ideas and conceive of these different worlds. Really, the 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 the, the fun thing for Lewis, the fun thing in that book is the imagining of the Martian culture. Right, and the interaction yeah. between ransom and the Martian cultures, and learning how this works, and of course through that, learning more about Earth and understanding Earth better, and that's that's exactly the kind of thing. I mean, if you read, uh, you know, like H.G. Wells, for instance, you know, the, the right. time machine, uh, it's no different. I mean, the time machine is like, and there's this machine, and you sit in it, and things spin around, <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's thousands of years later. Like, it's, I mean, the mechanism is completely unexplained. But again, right. it's not, it's not the point. The point is it is just a vehicle and then you get to this other world and of course the whole point of the time machine is you know the sort of the, his his interactions with the, with the Eloy and the Morlocks and and right. you know the way the things that he discovers about this other world and the things of course that that shows about about our society and and I mean and, and it's, it's it's a great book it's a brilliant book but again Lewis is doing a very similar thing so he was he was very much in the tradition in that at that time of, of, science yeah, of what science fiction novels were doing, so I think it's kind of unfair when uh, that you know people are are looking for more um, kind of 
Yeah, they're looking for more science based. in his yeah, science yeah, fiction. Exactly. And, and you're like, I think he was an English professor, wasn't he? <laughs> yes, he was. Uh, <laughs> yes, he was. Uh, he was. He's more of a more, more of the side of the brain that thinks about art. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, <laughs> uh, one of the other questions uh, Kevin Flanagan had was, what other literature? Did you uh, did you read other fantasy literature prior to Tolkien? Uh, the one that I read prior to Tolkien was was Lewis was the Narnia books. Uh, okay. Those I think were the very first works of fantasy I ever read, um, and the, because those I remember having read to me uh, by my parents when I was. I, I when was, you were little. Yeah, definitely not more than seven. I was like six and seven when they read me the Chronicles of Narnia. And that was my very first introduction to, to fantasy stuff. And it was soon after that that I discovered The Hobbit. Um, so, I mean, there were other books that I really enjoyed when I was a, when I was a kid. But those were the, those. It was always kind of for me, it was kind of always those two. It was always Narnia and Tolkien. And that was right. that was really kind of the bread and butter that I grew up with as far as fantasy stuff goes. And and what uh, you know, uh, we've spent forty five minutes of me <laughs> picking your brain about the Hobbit and and Lord of the Rings. But what else do you like to do? What else do you like to read? Or or, or what would you recommend? Is there is there modern stuff that I mean? I know you don't have a, a copious amounts of free time. <laughs> yes. To to do any light reading. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Well, I mean, uh, there one of the. I, I mean, I have been doing some uh, some modern fantasy stuff. In fact, I'm teaching a class on modern fantasy uh, this coming summer, really? where I'm looking at some uh, sort of interesting new angle or not new angles and they're not like you know this is not a class of undiscovered fantasy authors these are like mainstream uh mainstream big big fantasy authors of the last 50 years basically post in the the, of the post tolkien era and uh and looking at looking at sort of the things that they were interested in i think there's some really interesting similarities and differences and the six that we're looking at in this class are peter beagle we're going to read the last unicorn which is a which is a, a, a really surprising book i think it's i just i i have an enormous amount of respect for that book it's a really strange book when you read it at first i remember the first time i read it i was like yeah, I'm really not sure about this, but I just every time I read it, it is, uh, it is, it is. I am just more and more impressed with that book. So Peter Beagle's the last uh, unicorn. Yeah, I've never heard of it. It's really yeah, good. go go. What else? Uh, yeah. uh, Ursula cool. Le Guin's uh, Earthsea trilogy. So uh, the first nice one, is one. The, the Wizard of Earthsea. Uh, so we're, yes. we're going to be doing that. Um, I'm gonna let's see. I'm also teaching. Uh, I'm forgetting what order I put them in. I think next is Neil Gaiman's Stardust. Okay. Um, yeah, I like a lot of game and stuff, and, th- and that one is—I know it's—it's it's not one of his most prominent uh, works. It's not as famous as uh, like a, a American Gods, say, which I considered. Right. Um, but I really like Stardust because of the way that he is playing with a lot of the traditional ideas of the land of fairy and the boundary between our world and the world of fairy, and how those things work and how they cross over. And there are lots of. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, well, I liked it. I thought it was like a really fancy version of the Princess Bride. <laughs> yes. But I am a simple woman of the people. Uh, which, is a, which is an excellent book, also, by the way. I, the yes, Princess Bride it, is fantastic. It's a great book. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Stardust is really good. I yeah, liked it. Yeah, yeah. So we're gonna do Neil Gaiman Stardust. Then I'm, uh, we're doing uh, one of Jim Butcher's Dresden Files books. Um, which one? Uh, we're doing Summer Night, book four. That's the only one I've read. Well, I read the first one and I hated it. Yeah. 
and then somebody said, keep going. He writes better. He's getting it together. So uh, I just found it last week, and I read it, and so then I bought five. Oh, good, yeah. So, they do really, especially, I think, around book three and book four, it really does start to kind of come together. No, I, I got uh, – that, that was a series that I was recently um, – became addicted to thanks to my students there are there are many books okay. that my students will come to me and they'll be oh have you read this you should read this and so I, I had i had a few very persistent students who pestered me until i read the dresden files and i really like it i think that what he what butcher does with uh with bringing together uh different mythologies and the way that he conceives his world and juxtap and not juxtaposes it with because they're not side by side but the way he superimposes it upon our world and hacks right. the mundane world and the magical world kind of you know working together and all of those different mythologies integrated i think there's some really interesting stuff that he does there um so i one of the reasons i chose summer night is because you've got the whole fairy thing so i wanted to i wanted to have that uh we're going to be reading that i believe right after stardust um because uh, you know, I wanted to sort of be looking at the two, the the, the different ways that that oh, right. Damon and, and Jim Butcher are dealing with that same kind of the relationship between fairy and uh, and and humanity kind of Makes kind sense. of thing. Um, then uh, Garth Nix's Sabriel. This is from the first book of oh. the Horson trilogy. Okay. Is th- those are really good. Also, one which I only discovered um, this one through uh, through a fan. Actually, one of the one of my listeners uh, in in my podcast was sending me emails gushing about this series for a while. I was <laughs> like, well, all right, I'll give it a try, and I loved it. I think it's really, really well done. Um, Say the name of it again. Uh, Garth Nix N I X is the author, uh, right. and the series is called the Abhorsen Trilogy. A B H O R S E N. And uh, it's basically it's somewhat like Stardust in that there's sort of two different kingdoms, uh, a sort of a mundane kingdom and a magical kingdom with a wall right. between them um, and you know, an actual physical boundary and a wall. Um, but there's also this, you know, that's kind of that operates on one level, whereas there's a, sort of this larger level where there's this boundary between life and death and the primary um, the primary sort of magical force in that world is, is well, and that's not quite fair to say, but uh, anyway, right. one, one of the primary, I'm explaining it very badly, but no, no. One of the primary um, uh, forces in those books is necromancy, and the, you know, the people who can, by magic, cross over from life into death and bring back the dead. And the abhorsen is the the sort of anti necromancer whose job it is oh. to uh, to 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 bring the dead back and to put the dead back and to oppose the necromancers who would uh, use the dead to destroy the living. Anyway, it's uh-huh. it's really cool, and the the uh, the the protagonist of of Sabriel is uh, the character Sabriel. Gabrielle, uh, who is the daughter of the Abhorsen. So she is like the, the this female necromancer in training who is uh, who basically has to figure things out on her own and uh, sort of discover what all of this stuff is about and what's going on. It's really neat. I think it's, it's that, you know... The, the, that sounds cool. It's very cool. And the way that he plays with boundaries and the juxtaposition of of... of 
the mundane world and the magical world and the juxtaposition of life and death. There's some just some really cool stuff there. So I think it's it's, it's a really neatly conceived world. Um, oh, that'll be great. Yeah, and then and then the last one, of course, is uh, Game of Thrones. We're gonna do George R. R. Martin as well. <laughs> uh, can't 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 not do Martin uh, at this point. So we're we're gonna be we're gonna be especially now that he's been all HBOified. So right, he's um, been he's been HBO'd to death. Yeah, um, it's uh, I mean I I really I th- admire Martin. It's it's hard, and the thing that I find hardest about Martin is that, of course, he's depicting this really gritty, harsh world, um, and he's so good at it right. that it's often very unpleasant. I find. Well, I think that's what it is. I like when I met the family in the first. I was like, oh, these people are dead. Right. Uh, these people will not live throughout the end of this <laughs> right. book. I'm pretty sure, and I kind of like them, so I'm done. <laughs> right. But then I tried again to read the hard copy because I can skim and get the get the story and then do a reread, and then you know. But I still couldn't do it. I was like, oh, too sad, too sad. It's very painful. I mean, you've got to have you've got to have a kind of a tough stomach in several different ways. Uh, right to get through, but like I said, I mean it's it's I I admire it's it. Worth it, huh? It is. Worth, yeah. See, I mean it's hard because you know I feel like you know my my my, my really short uh, like one sentence of uh, uh, you know sort of reaction to Martin's books is that I really admire them, but I don't really enjoy them because <laughs> it's like he just Ooh, such compelling but not to, fun. Exactly, because what I'm being compelled into is this really horrible world, which is like very <laughs> successfully horrible. But the but yeah. The problem is, is that it's horrible at the end of the day. I, I have the same feeling about a video game called Diner Dash, <laughs> where uh, you have an endless shift and you're a waitress. It's compelling, but not fun. <laughs> have you ever read uh, this Patrick Rothfuss? I haven't yet. He is near the top of my list. I've got. I, I have. Uh, I have his book. Uh, Wizard. Uh, um, on my wish list, is that is, is that the, pretty amazing? Yeah, quite honestly. Yeah, yeah no, it's, he's he's uh, he is uh, also a student recommendation that I've been uh, uh, the, the sort of in one of my next uh, one or two to uh, give in to. So yeah, what about what about your uh, your uh, your fantasy opera? Genres, your uh, your your Anne McCaffrey's, your Lois McMaster Bujold's. Yeah, um, I, I I have you tried either of them? I have, yes, I have. Well, okay, I was about to say I've read Anne McCaffrey, but that would be a little bit misleading because I haven't read all of Anne McCaffrey. You know, I, I oh no one I, no one could. Well, exactly. See, so I, if I just. I think she was being driven by her publishers at the end of it. Yeah. I was like, when, you know, when, when a character dies of old age because you've written so many books, right. that's too many books. Uh, <laughs> it's right. not okay. Right. Yes, exactly. But no, I They're mean, doing I, the same I, I thing with the, Bujold. Sort of the core of the, uh, you know, the, the original Dragon Riders of Pern series, which, which is very good. I mean, those are, those are, those are, those are super fun. Yeah, I would yeah. definitely count those as sort of fantasy classics. Many of the things that she conceives of in, uh, in, in her world are just really, really different, really fascinating. So. Yeah. And then science fiction wise, my favorite science fiction writer is a woman by the name of Cage Baker. Cool. No, I don't with a K. Yeah. K-A-G-E. And it's what it is, is it has two things that I don't enjoy um, usually, which are time travel and immortality. OK. And I don't usually like them because people don't have enough history. They don't do enough research right. to make the history right. Right. But she is obviously a giant nerd and uh, has gone back in time and nails it. So the, the immortality 
the first one is called the Garden of Eden, and it's set during the 1600s. And it's and it's essentially it's a, a corporation who who they have immortal servants who work their way forward and hide things so that the corporation can sell them in the future. Okay. And it's it's much it's so great it's such a great series and she finished it she passed away about a year and a half ago but she finished it before she died and um that that's an amazing series when you have some free time and would like some science fiction yeah excellent excellent it's uh you know it's been an hour that's true that's true uh i just uh is there anything else you want to talk about or i mean we we got to plug your book is you're gonna the book's gonna come out yes in september yeah uh exploring the hobbit um so as you could you know tell from my uh, analysis of The Hobbit earlier. I've had that stuff rather on my mind. Um, uh, well done. Beca- uh, but yeah, no, I've, uh, so I've written my book on The Hobbit, um, and basically my book is a, is a chapter-by-chapter discussion of The Hobbit You know, for people who want to kind of get into it more, people who are asking the question, you know, like, you know, is, is this just a kid's book? You know, is, is there anything right. really worth sort of, you know, uh, for, you know, for an adult to be reading or thinking about? And my answer is yes, a little spoiler. Yes, there, but uh, <laughs> right. um, but anyway, yeah. So I, I go through, you know, there are 19 chapters in the Hobbit. So I, I go through, I go through the book chapter by chapter, kind of tracing the major themes and sort of showing what's, um, you know, basically doing a very similar thing to what I do in my podcast, except. A little bit more because I get to be able to go into a bit more detail than I do in my class lectures and stuff uh, on right. on the Hobbit. But I mean, this is for me. It's the thing which kind of defines, uh, you know, a great book, uh, you know, or a great author is when you really. You know, sort of sit down and read carefully and look at how this stuff works. You see, like, it's just, you know, you, you notice all these things and there's, there's so much more to it. It just becomes richer and richer the more you read it and the more carefully you read it. Um, so I, I, yeah. uh, I, I, that's basically what I'm kind of doing in the book is kind of going through and showing, um, you know the sort of the, the the patterns and kind of meanings that are being unfolded throughout the book. It's really neat. So and, and really, yeah. I mean, I've been listening to Riddles in the Dark, and mm-hmm. which is the podcast you're doing specifically. Compare, you know, speculation about the movie, essentially. Yes. yes. Right. Yes. And and you can tell how much you've been studying the Hobbit because it's like, you know, every layer that you pull back from from the Hobbit, you're like. What? What? What's that? You know, like one of the first episodes of the Tolkien Professor that I think I listened to was one where you were discussing, I don't know, the nature of the master servant in the Lord of the Rings. Yes. yes. <laughs> and it's just, I mean, it's it's fascinating. Oh, you know what? My brother wanted to ask uh, about the. Uh, have you, is there an, is there an episode where you discuss in the Lord of the Rings the nature of race? Yep. As far as like, because the bad guys seem to be a little darker, a little browner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. No. We, yeah. We do talk about that, and a lot of that, you know, in Tolkien's world is clearly is clearly driven by geography. You know, he was writing a very much northwestern European, like basically a Germanic. Uh, because right. that was the world that he that he lo- not just the world that he lived in. He wasn't uh, he, he wasn't kind of preferencing Nordic kind of people uh, because he himself was of that extraction. He was because of the legends that he loved. I mean, he loved Norse mythology and he loved old Germanic mythology, right. and so he was writing in that tradition. And so so yeah, so like basically those were the kinds of stories that he told, and the people who are further away. Um, because uh, that's where it came from. Because they were all um, okay. I'm sorry, yeah, I interrupted. Yeah. Go. No, exactly, exactly. So I mean, this is why you know, like, a, a, 
a lot of people, you know, are like, well, you know, look, you notice that the, the people who come up from the South and have dark skin are, you know, they're like the evil people. And like, first of all, they're, they are in Tolkien's world, the deceived people. Like they're the people who have been deceived by Sauron, not, and on generally enslaved by him and are not intrinsically evil. But, um, Right, because some of them are given a chance to to surrender, and right. and they've been told these horrible lies about what will happen if they do surrender, right. and exactly. But some of them surrender anyway, and then they're marched back, and they just have to swear fealty or something like that. Or exactly, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, and, and so basically, yeah, I mean, they live in the they live in the far south, and it's like desert down there. So they have dark. I mean, he was basically he was he was being true to the you know geography that he had established. Right. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so not that's to, what I always suspected. Yeah, I didn't think it was any yeah. sort of. I don't think so. I mean, he was he was very. Uh, I mean, this was not a, certainly that kind of thing. Like that, uh, you know, black and white was not a, an issue on his radar screen. Uh, I, right. I think at all. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, it's it is something when he thinks about you know sort of race and, uh, and traditions and things like that. He's thinking all about you know these uh, these. These ancient He's Germanic species, I think. Yeah, too. Exactly. exactly. Like, like he gets into like orcs and elves mm-hmm. and and hobbits and that sort of thing. Not, not into black and white and right. Exactly. Indians and whatever's happening. And that's a uh, different kind of question too. I mean, and one that mm-hmm. he thought about, uh, you know, a lot about, like the orcs, for instance. You know, could the orcs be redeemed? Was a question that really troubled him, especially later in his life. But, um, but yeah, yeah. No, it's it's. Uh, it is. Oh, and you know, one thing I was thinking, uh, and uh, my, my my conscience has been sort of uh, getting to me from uh, from earlier on. Uh, oh yes. When we're talking about Silmarillion movie stuff, yeah. I don't want to give the impression that I believe that these things are very likely to be made. I agree with the premise that there are some of those stories are really good stories which could work well on film, but I can almost promise that that will only happen over Christopher Tolkien's literal dead body Um, because the Silmarillion rights are controlled completely by the Tolkien estate. The Lord of the Rings and Hobbit rights are not. Tolkien sold the movie rights to those and those are not controlled by the Tolkien estate. And so therefore the films have been made. Yes. During his life, he sold them. Um, Did he want to buy land? uh, No, it was, it was was basically he kind of, uh, the the impression that you get is that he kind of thought he was swindling. Well, not exactly that he was swindling. But oh, basically okay. Somebody offered him money for them, and he's like, uh, "What? You're not money? really going to be able to make movies <laughs> out of this," which was actually kind of true back in the seventies. So, right. um, so you know, he was like, "Okay, so like you're giving me free money, then? All right." Um, and obviously, it's kind of turned out a little bit differently in the long run. But um, but basically, yeah. it just didn't really mean anything to him much. Um, However, so does the Tolkien estate not get any residuals or any money from the They do, but it's, Lord it's pretty small. It's like 2% or something like that. Um, okay. It's pretty small. Now, of course, 2% of the Lord of the Rings of, franchise. Of a billion dollars. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, I could live on that. But, um, right. But anyway, it's, it's yeah, it's it's not a huge – it's not – Yeah, I was just curious. But Silmarillion yeah. material, this, the Tolkien estate retains all rights to absolutely. And, like, there is – 
I, I, there's absolutely, there's a 0% chance that Christopher Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien's son, will ever in his lifetime agree to a movie being done in the Silmarillion. I feel like, like, like it's one of the things you can absolutely take. In his lifetime. In his okay. Lifetime. You know, and he's. Have you ever met him? I haven't met him, no. Oh, um, one day. I haven't met him. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's in his mid 70s now. Um, okay. But uh, but yeah, while he lives, I can promise there will be no summer in me. Uh, but you know, I, we don't know you know what's going to happen uh, you know later on. So uh, so who knows? You know, maybe in our lifetimes we'll see. Silmarillion films. I, I, I don't know. But uh, but anyway, I certainly don't want to give the impression that I like have any inside information right. that these are coming down the pipe because they're certainly not actively coming down the pipe right now. Fair enough. <laughs> anyway. That is noted. No doubt that, Rangers. Yeah. yeah. So, so you've got TolkienProfessor.com. Mm-hmm. You're at Washington University? Is that uh, Washington College, yes. And, College. And- Thanks, Jackie, for, the, for not writing reading the notes. No, okay. Washington College, it's in Maryland though. That's right. Yes. And uh and I'm also of course uh yeah, running uh the Mythgard Institute, which is uh an, where where anybody can come and and study uh you know, if, if you're interested in serious classes on Tolkien and fantasy literature, you can come to the Mythgard Institute and study uh study with Please. with uh me and with other people. We've got uh Verlin Flieger, one of the greatest Tolkien scholars in the world, who's also going to be teaching a class with us this coming summer. It's going to be so I'm doing my modern fantasy class there at Mythgard, and uh, okay. uh, uh, Dr. Flieger is teaching uh, an Arthurian lit class. It's going it's to be really cool. So basically, this wow. is Mythgard has really just kind of grown out of my podcast. You know, after doing my podcast yeah. for a couple of years, uh, basically sort of two things were happening. One was people were basically sort of seeing how many people really loved this and being asked by people again and again, is there any way we could take real classes, you know, on, on this yes. stuff? You know, could we, you know, rather than just listening to podcasts, can we actually do a class? Um, and, you know, I was like, well, no, but let me work on that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the second thing was just uh, basically experimenting, you know, and sort of seeing at, as a teacher, you know, seeing, you know, actually you can, you can really do even something like a discussion class, um, through internet stuff. And that was, you know, so through my Silmarillion seminar, I was experimenting yeah. with that. And, and I was just really, really happy from a, from a purely, you know, professorial standpoint. I was like, you know, this, this actually, there's nothing that I do in a classroom that I can't do, uh, through, internet tools, you know, online to really have, you know, what I think is, uh, is, uh, you know, what I, as a teacher would think of as a really good and, um, it's a genuine class experience, yeah, exactly. you know, and I, I am psyched about it just because I would love to have taken classes in your lecture hall and this is as close as I can get. And I love every minute of it, quite honestly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a huge fan, my friend. So, so I'm excited about uh, Mythgard stuff. It's still pretty new. We're uh, just entering into our third semester. So, you know, people, we've got our, our summer classes uh, enrolling. Now we've got modern fantasy, Arthurian lit and, uh, and Latin people were wanting to, we're, we're doing languages too. People wanted to study Latin. So you can, you, we've got, uh, you know, learn Latin with a really awesome professor. So yes. um, anyway, it's really cool. So Mythgard.org. M-Y-T-H-G-A-R-D dot org is, is, uh, is the site for that. All the note session, the note section will be full of all kinds of links to everything, uh, Corey Olson, Tolkien professor related. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, no problem. This was fun. Excellent. My hat, my hat, my hat. They're dancing around my hat, <laughs> my hat, my hat, my hat. Well, what do you think of that? 
If it looks like a Mexican hat dance and it sounds like a Mexican hat dance, it's most likely a Mexican hat dance. So take off your hat and let's dance. Yay! Oh my god. We, why don't we just call that as the end of the show?